From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Today, we're joined by Anthony Ramiro, the executive director of the ACLU. Anthony has been in this role for nearly 20 years, and he's seen the organization through periods of massive growth and numerous national crises. He started the job just days before September 11th, 2001, and just as he took the helm, the so-called War on Terror presented new and widespread restrictions to our civil rights and civil liberties. Now, he's facing a new challenge, leading the ACLU during the COVID-19 pandemic. He joins us today to talk about how the ACLU is navigating the current moment and responding to the crisis. Anthony, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Emerson. Good to be with you, of course. So first things first, we're in the midst of week, I've lost count of working from home, the global pandemic. Week nine. Week nine? Week nine. How are you doing? I'm holding up. I'm holding up. I mean, it's an exciting time to be doing the work we're doing. People are really counting on us. The stakes are high. Dealing with a COVID-19 pandemic wasn't on anyone's (laughs) scenario plan, wasn't part of anyone's strategy for this year or for the future. And yet I think what's so remarkable about this organization is we plan and we think and we try to anticipate scenarios and then we respond and we respond as nimbly as we're able in real time. And I'm just incredibly proud about the work we're doing. Well, I definitely want to get to all of the ways in which the ACLU is responding to the pandemic. But sticking with you for a minute, I mean, you're known for many things, but among the things that you're known for within the ACLU are your three-piece suits (laughs) and fancy accessories uh, Uh and having any PDF attachments printed and handed to you. So I'm curious, (laughs) with those two characteristics in mind, what it's like to work from home. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like doing it solo. I've learned how to do everything. I realize how much my assistant, Kathy Lauer, really does do. I always knew she did a lot. She's been working with me for decades, even before I got here to the ACLU. So I've known her for a very long time. But, oh, my God, it's a lot of work making it look easier than it actually is. I mean, just in terms of how do you run the railroad and deal with the kind of questions of the staff and the organization, the internal operations and organization issues. Same number of media appearances per month as I normally would have. Larger number of speaking engagements because now it's harder to say no to when someone (laughs) says, come speak. I can't use the excuse that I'm traveling at that time because I'm not. So it is an adjustment. I'm sure it's an adjustment for many folks. And it's been an adjustment in my personal life. I've had friends who've been affected. I mean, the headquarters where you and I are, we're in New York City. And I have one friend who's been on a ventilator for about eight weeks. And that's a hard one when you think about the personal cost. And looks like she's pulling through. And, you know, I've been in touch with her husband. And I know her 16-year-old daughter. I remember when her daughter was born. Mm. It was kind of crazy. So... You know, this pandemic still has enormous personal impacts on people. So even as we work from home, you're still dealing with the stress of what's happening in the outside world. And then you're having to work to address the issues as they come up. But I am healthy. I am driven. I am blessed. I feel like I have a job that allows me to contribute to the world. And so for that, I feel blessed and grateful. Well, As we get into the work that we're doing now, let's go back to the moments where you realized that this was 
this COVID-19 pandemic was going to change the world in ways that were going to, you know, affect the way not only the ACLU, but everybody is going to have to have their lives adjusted. And I wonder sort of what the initial thinking was as it became clear that this was more than just a flu on the other side of the world. Yeah, I got to be honest. I mean, this is one that I was a bit more surprised with when how it unfolded. I, I kind of pride myself on trying to look around a corner or two or three. But on this one, I was at a Christmas party in Washington, D.C. And so uh, the question was asked of this one person who's in government, what do you think about this COVID-19 pandemic? And I'm like, ah, oh, it won't be that bad. Mm. It won't be a big problem. And I don't know, there was a part of me that I took that, which was like, okay, it's nothing to be terribly worried about. And then I remember some of my colleagues inside the national office, Esha Bandari, who works with you, who I guess was the first one to really begin to ring the bell inside the organization and say, we should dust off the work we did and the documents we produced for the Ebola crisis. And I'm like, okay, sounds probably like a good idea. And it wasn't until February or so when I began to kind of realize, oh, my God, this is a, you know, you begin to feel the tremblings on the on the tectonic plates before the earthquake and before the tidal wave hits. And and then it became more and more obvious as the New York City became the epicenter. It was clear that we needed to kind of readjust the way we thought about, you know, work and and also adjust to our understanding of what liberty and freedom meant at times like this. So. I think it's a, like many Americans, I think I've been adjusting to the moment as, as it has evolved. And luckily, you know, colleagues like Esha Bandari and other colleagues who said, wait a minute, let's understand what we did around what were our statements and positions around the Ebola crisis. What can we learn from it here? I think the most relevant thing that Esha told me afterwards was that she had developed a relationship with 350 public health experts back in the time of the Ebola crisis. And so... Back in January, she was able to hit the switch and reactivate that network of of public health professionals who could advise us on how to think about the balancing between liberty and public health and what are some of the ways in which we should be approaching this work. And that was incredibly helpful and effective. But and I don't think we've seen, you know, the fullest impact of it yet. I mean, I think it's part of, you know, it's not like we actually see what's even on the horizon in the short term in terms of what the impact is on people's lives and how the different governments across the country are going to deal with it. Well, you know, as you said, this has been an evolving experience for everybody. And what started out as something that was far away and then only sort of seemingly impacting a handful of the super elite globetrotter folks. And then very quickly and unsurprisingly, we saw the disparate impact actually on Black folks and other, you know, vulnerable communities, whether because of health yeah. issues yeah. or poverty or yeah. all sorts of other underlying yeah. social issues are being highlighted in the, in the impact of COVID-19. So yeah. as we've sort of seen the challenge evolving, as we've readjusted our types of work, you as the executive director had to help in priority setting. So yeah. with all of the things moving so quickly all the time and the vast array of issues that we already work on. How did you go about the process of setting priorities and sort of uh, pointing our organization in a certain direction in terms of responding to the most imminent crisis? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was also an evolving issue. But one thing I realized is that it's uh, having been the director of the ACLU 
during 9-11. I'd started the week before September uh, 11th. That in moments of crisis, in moments of fear, moments of insecurity, civil liberties are often imperiled. And so, but we wanted to be smart advocates. You know, thinking through what would be, where would it be, be challenged? It was clear to me that as the pandemic was playing out, that people who did not have the ability to do the social distancing that I asked of the ACLU staff, go home, stay inside, remote work, wash your hands, stay six feet apart from strangers. Subsequently, we'd tell them to wear masks. That those measures and those uh, precautions we were taking with ourselves and with each other were just simply not possible for people who were in detention centers or who were incarcerated in prisons and jails. And so that was like the number one priority, if you will, that we're just kind of the light bulb went off and you said, okay, that's got to be a place where we'd really double down. And I have visited different jails and prisons over the span of my career. I've been to Guantanamo half a dozen times. I've been to the New Orleans Parish Prison. And I spent a couple of visits at the LA County Men's Jail, which is probably the most harrowing place I've been. Mm. And I can remember, I remember today, the visits at LA County Men's Jail as if it was yesterday, it was a number of years ago. And there's no way for me to imagine with all the fear and anxiety that we're feeling around this pandemic, what it would be like if I were actually detained in the LA County Men's Jail. So that had to be the number one priority to make sure that we were trying to get out as many people who were vulnerable or had these underlying conditions or who shouldn't be detained, like in some of the immigration immigration detention centers to see if we can get them released from these kind of facilities that literally were kind of rife with the conditions that were gonna make the the spread of the pandemic go like wildfire. And, you know, all in, We've done an amazing job of both the litigation and the advocacy. The advocacy has really been putting pressure on governors, saying, if you don't let people out, people will die on your watch. And this is your responsibility. And so fortunately, we've been able to really put pressure on elected officials and prison officials and governors like Governor Polis in Colorado, decreased the jail population by 40%. Kentucky, a red state, decreases jail population by 28%. In Oklahoma, you've had the governor, also a Republican, kind of uh, do some very serious release of people who have been incarcerated. And that's been great. You know, literally drafting executive orders, literally putting pressure on government officials, little getting up in the, in the grill of elected officials and of prison officials. And I think it's been critically important. And then to try to move the hearts and minds of the American public. There was an ad that we ran on Easter Sunday that was a bit unorthodox, actually quoting from Matthew 25 from the New Testament, the Matthew Gospel. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in jail, you visited me. And we did this ad with Union Theological Seminary. Mm. And an interesting story is apparently the governor in Oklahoma streamed that ad the morning in a kind of a COVID-19 commission meeting, the morning of the day when he signed this release order, letting a lot of people out of jails in Oklahoma. So it's important to use all the advocacy you can. Then we filed 47 some odd lawsuits against prisons and jails, started to get people out. And 
you know, to different degrees of success, but really important to try. Similar work with immigrant detention centers. I think there have been 41 lawsuits filed against immigrant detention centers. All in, our COVID docket, which we didn't have nine weeks ago, stands hmm. at 113 legal actions as of today. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, right? So they're in four different buckets around criminal justice, immigrants' rights, reproductive rights, and voting rights. So I'm really proud of the legal work we're doing because literally this legal work can mean the difference between life or death for many of the people that we're bringing these lawsuits. You mentioned the work on detention in jails and in immigration detention, but the other areas you mentioned are also critically important at this time, voting rights and reproductive rights. Yeah. So voting rights is a kind of a clear extension that, you know, at a time when, you know, we're in the middle of this frothy election season, the primaries are happening across the country or have happened, and then the general election in November 2020. And it is critical that people be allowed to cast their vote and not be forced to risk their lives as they cast their vote. We saw the craziness that played out in Wisconsin, for instance, when the, the governor there was not allowing vote by mail or absentee ballots. And so literally we've been organizing ourselves. Uh, Dale Ho, the director of our Voting Rights Project, is one of my kind of heroes in the organization. But he's the one who brought the case against the U.S. Commerce Department when they wanted to add the citizenship question on the census. And he won that case. He got Justice Roberts to rule on his side, which was pretty remarkable. So he's been organizing this plan with his colleagues in the Voting Rights Project. To There are 17 states that don't really allow any real vote-by-mail procedure. And there are 30 states that have what we consider to be substandard vote-by-mail procedures. So we have organized them into three different waves, three different buckets of states where we are litigating and we're going to plow through each of the most significant states, making sure that people's votes can be cast without risking their lives. In Texas, you know, not a place where we normally win. Kind of where we filed a case, uh, knowing it's going to be a challenge in a place like Texas, where we're saying that unless you allow people to vote by mail in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic, you are creating an undue burden on the right to vote. And so far, so good. I mean, we're going to have to kind of defend it on appeal, but it is a remarkable win thus far. And we're going to keep pushing to make sure that that our, our system of democracy and of voting has to evolve with the current crises. And this is not a partisan issue. It doesn't really matter, you know, to, to the ACLU, it doesn't matter at all which party wins or loses. That's not what we do. We don't oppose or support any candidate or any party for office. We believe in the integrity of elections and that voting should be as easy and as widespread and as encompassing as possible. And so, you know, there are some in the Republican Party. Donald Trump says that if he adopts a vote-by-mail approach, it will hurt the Republican Party. I don't, I don't really care. That's not the reason why we're doing it. I don't really believe it either. I think there are a lot of elderly Republican voters who are just not going to put their lives at risk mm. and are likely to stay home. And so I don't really think the data bears out that it's going to help or hurt one party over another. And regardless, it's just the right thing to do, to make voting easy, to have people vote. So 
That's, that's been the second area of great focus. And the third one, which is one I did not see coming. This is another thing where I had a blind spot. Thank God Jen Dalvin, the head of the Reproductive Freedom Project, saw it before I did. Who would have ever guessed that ideologues who've been trying to shut down abortion as part of their, their mission in life would use the COVID-19 pandemic as another way to try to shut down abortion services? And so... Shame on me for being surprised. It's rarely obvious that they would have gone that way. It's lamentable, it's unfortunate, but it is not surprising. And so we've had uh, over seven or so cases where ideologues in kind of state legislatures and governors have been saying, oh, that termination of that pregnancy, that is not an essential medical service or, you know, as if you could hit the pause on a pregnancy. Mm. And it's also completely counterintuitive. If you make a woman allow the pregnancy to develop further before she can terminate the pregnancy, it makes the termination that much more complicated for her. So there are some states like in Arkansas saying, we'll let you, you know, we'll, we won't allow the early terminations of pregnancies, but as you get closer to the legal limit, we might allow you. Well, that's completely yeah. illogical. Yeah. Uh, so those have been really important efforts for us. And that's obviously no one should be using a pandemic as an excuse to push an ideological agenda that they couldn't otherwise achieve without a pandemic. And then obviously we're concerned about privacy issues and the privacy of the pandemic and some of these new technologies. There's just no shortage of challenges that we're facing related to COVID-19. But then we also talked about racial inequality playing into this, yeah. disability rights yeah. playing into this as we think about healthcare rationing and tracing and all those sorts of things. And then on yeah. my team, which we deal with speech, privacy and technology, we're worried about protest rights. We're worried about privacy concerns. We're worried about surveillance and other civil liberties issues. And it strikes me that this is a time when having affiliates in all 50 states is really crucial to cover all of the issues as they pop up on an almost constant basis. When people say to me, what is so distinctive about the ACLU? There are three things that I always tell Emerson. There's one, that we're multi-issue. So if you care about the functioning of a democracy and you care about the rights and liberties of everybody, you don't have to pick or choose with us, that we cover the waterfront, whether it's voting or immigrants' rights or criminal justice or reproductive rights. Then number two, we have boots on the ground in every state. And the third thing is the membership. Mm. Half the budget comes from ordinary people whose average gift is 72 bucks. And that means that we have real political power in a way that if we were only relying upon the 1%, it would mean that we would be a lot less powerful. And the other thing that's amazing about the ACLU is we're now in our 100th year, right? So we've been doing this a long time. We've seen... We've seen, we've even seen global pandemics before. The very first one, right? When you think about it, the ACLU was founded in 1918. It was first called the National Civil Liberties Bureau. Uh, and then two years later, it was called the American Civil Liberties Union. It was right on the heels of that epidemic of 1918, the flu epidemic. And yet these youngins, you know, the, the youngins at the time, were optimistic and thoughtful and energetic and irrepressible. And it's at precisely out of that moment that the ACLU was born, mm. of the World War One, the flu pandemic of 1918, the Palmer raids. Oh, my God. Um, and the organization seems to be born out of and reborn 
in on all these crises? Well, like those crises, those were sort of pivot points for our country. Yeah. And I'm thinking yeah. about the agenda that we have or that we've pursued, as you talked about setting priorities, getting folks out of detention. To some extent, that's yeah. something we're always trying to do, right? Yeah. Our values and our goals largely have not changed. What, what changes with us is the opportunity to make kind of progress or to convince individuals who were otherwise not convinced with us. The ability now to go to a kind of a judge or, or governor and say, really, what's the point of having all of these geriatric prisoners incarcerated, even in the best of times? And what really is the point right now if we're going to put them in harm's way during a pandemic? So I think it allows us kind of a new way to kind of make some of the same arguments. I think the organization obviously needs to kind of evolve and grow over time. So I think the ACLU is going to have to really kind of be very vigilant and mindful as we go forward. The privacy issues are hugely important. You know, there's been this great push to develop these new technologies, these new technology-based apps that allow for contact tracing. And, you know, sure, that's an essential part of being able to reopen society and being able to kind of flatten the curve on the pandemic is being able to track individuals with whom a COVID positive person has been in touch. But it also spells out great concerns for us. I mean, it's kind of like it's like the Molotov cocktail of civil liberties nightmare. It's personal information on these smartphones. It's uh, tied to government databases, and it can be broadcast to members of the public. So you want to make sure you're doing it right. You want to make sure that it's voluntary. You want to make sure that people are not forced into releasing their private health information. You want to make sure it's time-related, that when COVID-19 is gone, that we kind of do away with these surveillance procedures. And you want to make sure that it is effective, that it's actually helping and not just creating a whole bunch of false hopes and false positives or false negatives, that it's actually helping in fighting the pandemic. All those questions are ones that we've asked in a series of white papers we've released on these technologies. So we've been trying to be proactive and and helpful and constructive, even as we raise the concerns about what's playing out. It seems like the urgency, especially of those privacy concerns, is only going to increase in the coming months as these tools are developed. We spoke with my colleague Jennifer Granick and our board member Michelle Goodwin about yeah. this issue on a recent episode. But you said your part of your job is to peek around the corner. Yep. And I'm wondering, sort of in your medium term planning, you're responsible for the health of the organization, the staff, the finances, all of this stuff. You know, we went through this crazy, we call it the Trump bump. Uh, where yeah. we grew massively after Trump was elected, uh, maybe a slight lessening of the bump after that was as was expected. But then, as we look forward, I think the next big milestone we were all looking forward to was the election in November. Yeah. Of course, COVID nineteen has interrupted and intervened. But I'm wondering, as you look forward into the coming months, where do you see the trajectory of the ACLU? Well, I think there are multiple trajectories that we'll have to pick a path depending on where we are in the different forks in the road. I mean, certainly the election of November 2020 is going to be critically important. And, you know, so many of the issues are literally on the ballot. And while we don't 
tell people who to vote for and we don't support or oppose any candidate for office, we do want people to cast an informed vote. The economy is really having an enormous impact on especially on low-income and minority communities, um, people of all walks of life. And so the ACLU has doubled down its work on family, medical leave and paid leave and sick leave. I've been getting a bunch of emails from some of our longstanding members and donors saying, what's the connection between civil liberties and civil rights and <laughs> medical leave or family leave? And we've recognized, we turned the corner that, you know, the ability to have access to health leave or medical leave is an important part of being able to live life with dignity and with full equality. And so it's an expansive part of our women's rights docket. It's an expansive, it's an important part of our racial justice docket that especially low-income kind of blue-collar workers haven't been given sick leave. And, and so as we think about access to equal opportunity and equality generally, that there are certain groups that don't have access to the policies that allow them to play the role we want them to in society. So we're going to have to really think through as more and more people are unemployed, what does that mean for civil liberties and civil rights? And we're going to see kind of the the negative impact on kind of especially equality in, in some of these kind of low-income and minority communities. The scapegoating of immigrants, I think you can certainly expect mm. that to continue, especially if Donald Trump is elected president again. But even if Vice President Biden becomes president, there'll be enormous pressures to scapegoat immigrants, especially in moments of economic uncertainty or economic downturn. And so, you know, all of that layered on top of an increasingly conservative federal bench where we're going to have to be really smart about what cases we file where. And, you know, and the recession obviously has an impact on our bottom line. But I'm confident that even though we have a lot of uncertainty on the horizon, the one thing I'm never uncertain about is whether or not we'll play an important constructive role, no matter how challenging it is. You can't help but be optimistic when you're associated with, with us or when you're a part of the ACLU. It's just the best days are, often, are always ahead of us if we do our jobs right. And as an executive director, as you look forward, one of the biggest decisions you have to make is around reopening. We're currently closed working from home through Labor Day, and we'll have to see how that develops. But, yeah. you know, one of the things that is defining about the ACLU is that we're always looking for what can go wrong and trying to mitigate yeah. those consequences and trying to push yeah. history in a positive direction. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what are you seeing any signs that we actually might come out of this stronger in some ways? Are there, is there anything that's giving you hope or optimism that we actually might see this as a positive pivot point? I mean, I'd like to think that no matter what happens, that you come out of this crisis point, that we come out of this crisis point as a country different. Yeah. And I think the idea that we have a responsibility to each other, I mean, I think that is increasingly an interesting narrative. The idea that mm. we wear the mask not to protect the mask wearer, I wear the mask to protect you yeah. and unknown people around me. Well, what? how can we tap into that idea that I have a personal responsibility to everyone around me for their health and their liberty and their freedoms, their livelihoods? How do we kind of really mobilize on those sentiments? I think that's what's 
going to be a critical turning point. I think leadership matters. And so maybe this is an opportunity for us to think differently about the type of society we want to live in. I hope so. All right, last question. I know that you're a great lover of arts and culture. What's your quarantine's arts, culture, music recommendation? There's a great lecture series that's being done by the Frick Museum in New York of a curator. Every week we'll do a kind of a virtual tour of something connected to the Frick collection. Mm. But, you know, you get to kind of travel the world virtually and hear a really intelligent art historian walk you through kind of some history of some piece of architecture. And I think what I've enjoyed the most is that as I'm stay at home or stuck at home, as I often tell my family and friends, <laughs> I use any opportunity I can to travel yeah. in my mind, in my heart, in my spirit. And to kind of, so there's a number of services of Broadway actors and singers who I have I've begun to line up kind of uh, birthday songs for friends of mine <laughs> nice. by having a kind of a singer kind of serenade them through on Zoom. <laughs> so I think we have to find a way to building community and to kind of getting outside of, of our locales, even when it's physically not possible, the mind and the spirit and the imagination can take you there. And for liberty, you know, the most important thing is to be optimistic it's the optimism that is the fuel for social change. And that, you know, if you let go of that optimism, you ain't got no fuel to get you to where you need to go. So we've got to remain focused on that. Anthony Ramiro, thanks so much for your time. And Emerson, I want to thank you. I think this is your last podcast. Is that right? Almost. One of my last couple. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing where you go from here. Probably TV is the next <laughs> thing, because you've done an amazing job as our host on these podcasts. So I very much appreciate you. I always learn about my own organization when I listen to your podcast. So I want to make sure I thank you for all your service with the podcast over this last couple of years. You've been amazing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks so much for taking the time and for all of your great work leading our organization. You bet. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.